Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel, the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're picking up in the book of Philippians. In this book, Paul calls the church in Philippi to live lives that reflect Christ, even in times of persecution. Remembering this, to live as Christ, to die as gain. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word. I can relate to that, but you know what? I've learned so much from Moody's life. I learned from that. Moody says I'm teachable. Or Whitfield. Or, or some of these others. I mean, everybody knows my Tozer is my favorite. I love Tozer. I love Tozer. I love reading Tozer. And yet I know that Tozer had issues in his life. I mean, his family life was not... We'd look at it and say, wow, his family life was a mess in a lot of ways. I mean, he didn't divorce his wife, but she kind of lived on her own pretty much, you know? But you know what? You look at the the overall picture of that man's life and say, okay, he was a man. He made mistakes, but there were things in his life worth paying attention to and emulating that where he was truly following Jesus. And and we can do that, and we should do that. Philippians 4.9 will tell us this. Philippians 4, 9, the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Okay, you've heard me teach, you've heard me lay these things out, do these things. But, but listen, he says not only that you heard me say, you heard me, you saw me do. You know, there's an important connection in that, right? Jesus talks about the Pharisees, and what does he say? He says, hey, do what they tell you, but don't be looking too much at them because they're not doing what they're telling you. And we've said that before to our own kids, you know, do as I say, not as I do. It sounds good, but it's scripturally wrong. And, and I would look at you guys, you know, and sometimes I tongue-in-cheek and say that to you, but the truth is you should be able to see in my life the things I'm teaching to you. And, and where you can't, I, I try to be honest with you to say, you know what, this is an area God's still working on me in, so I'm may not be your best example in this, but I feel obligated to teach you. That's fair. I can receive that from other people when they say that to me too. But at the same time, by and large, we should be looking at what we should be listening to what they're saying, but then there should be that connection between what they've said and how they're living their lives. Is their life you know, hypocritical to what it is they teach. You know, there, there are guys out there today that are teaching on sexual impropriety who are having affairs, you know, and it comes to light because God doesn't let that stay in the dark all that long. He loves his people too much to let it stay in the dark, but it comes to light. And I was just reading about a guy this morning, you know, and it's amazing. I won't go into his name, but he held a huge revival not too long ago in Florida. And, and it suddenly came to life that he was having affairs. And it is amazing. The number of people said, well, I understand he was having affairs, but his teaching's still good. And, you know, we still look to him as a prophet of God. And I'm like, how can you do that? That doesn't line up with Paul says. Paul says, look, the things you learned and you received and heard and saw in me, there needs to be some level of congruency between what we say and what we do. And, and let me now look at you and say, that's not just for those of us in, in, in ministry like this. It's for you and your lives you want to teach others, you want to lead others, then let your life align itself with what you teach. Now, again, please don't hear this as a message of you got to, but you need to get before the Lord so that he can bring this about in you. You have to be willing for, that, for the Lord to be able to come in and make that change in your life, to make that congruency. There's not a day that goes by that I don't pray that just for my life personally and for my life in ministry. Lord, please, I, I know there's incongruencies at time. Please make my life congruent with how I'm living it with, with what I'm teaching and what I'm saying and what I'm witnessing to others. 
You know, there is no greater hypocrisy in this world today than even in terms of witnessing to unbelievers and going out and telling them about Jesus, but then living in a way that defies everything that Jesus is about. It makes no sense. And, you know, if we think the world doesn't see that, that incongruity, we're crazy. If we think that the world looks at us and says, well, that's cool, the world doesn't. They might look at you and say, that's cool for you. But I have no interest in that. People are drawn to the genuine, and the genuine involves the congruency between the two. And then there's a scriptural charge that's given to leaders in 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. It says this, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion but willingly, not for dishonest gain but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. To hear the key word in that, that went along with all of the things that those who aspire to spiritual leadership should be looking to, to be examples, to be examples. Do you take care of a house full of kids? You're a spiritual leader. Do you take care of a Sunday school class here? You're a spiritual leader. Involved in ministry to others? You're a spiritual leader. Do you just be a witness for Christ on the street or at work? You're a spiritual leader. Know that. And that's what we're called to to be examples so that people will know what it is, what a Christian looks like, what it is to follow. Now, now you and I, if they were to see that and say that to us and say, you know what, you've been an example to me. Honestly, those of us that really are examples probably would look and say, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> you have got to be kidding me. I messed up here and I messed up there. That's our lives. We know our shortfalls. But if our hearts are toward the Lord and our sight each day is set on, on allowing Him to live through us, People are going to see the difference, and that will preach loudly to them as we give them the words about him too. Amen? So, you know, we look at this and we understand it's there. Now, again, you know, as we look at this, certainly Paul doesn't mean that we're to, you know, give our attention to and and let people be examples, everybody that comes along trying to set themselves up as an example. Paul's very clear here that we're to be discerning. I mean, we've already talked about that. You know, I like this. I came across this this week. It said that President Calvin Coolidge once invited friends from his hometown to dine with him at the White House, and unsure of their table manners, the guests decided to imitate the president. They watched closely to see which utensils he used, what foods he ate, and when. Their strategy seemed to succeed until coffee was served. Coolidge poured some coffee into his saucer. They all did the same. He added sugar and cream. They all did the same. Then the president bent over and put his saucer on the floor for the cat. (laughs) There are, I mean, the truth is, there are those within Christianity that are following the lead of people that are just, you know, preparing a meal for the alley cats, you know, for the spiritual alley cats. Be careful. You know, Paul certainly talked about sermon. In fact, he makes it clear, right? He says first that we're to observe the lives of the people we follow. The King James actually renders this verse like this. Brethren, be followers together of me and mark. It says, and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. And that word mark literally means observe carefully. And so what he's saying is, brethren, join in following my example and carefully observe those who so walk. 
carefully observe us, watch us. The implication is that there's to be an observation before we follow, a, a discerning observation before we follow. And, and in the next verse, Paul's going to talk about the observation they should have of those that they shouldn't follow. And second, he also says that we're to follow the example of those who exhibit what? A pattern of Christ-like living. A pattern implies what? Consistency. Doesn't he say that? Note those who so walk as you have for us, or you have us for a pattern. The implication is we're setting a pattern in our lives. There is a consistency. You just don't see it once or hear us preach it once and then do it once and then go out and live the way we want the rest of the time. When you look at our lives, you see a pattern of Christ-like living, and that becomes the question for anyone that sets themselves up as an example. What is the pattern of their life? Where is the trail leading in their life of their behaviors, of their speech, of their way of thinking? Where does it lead? Is it leading to Jesus or is it leading to carnality? Paul says there should be an observation. Now he gives it to us. It says in verse 18, For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Here Paul speaks of, of those that they should not look to for their example. And, and Paul points out here that, that there are many professed believers who walk in a way that runs con, you know, contrary to what he's teaching them and the things that are laid out in the Scriptures as they're now being written and what they heard from Jesus. And he's saying they're out there and they're going to try to set themselves up an example, but you know what? These, some of these people are just enemies of the cause of Christ. They're enemies of his cross cross. Enemies. That's a pretty strong term, isn't it? There are a lot of enemies of the cross today in our world that are not outside of Christianity that are inside of Christianity, or at least claiming to be. There are a lot of enemies of the cross. Now, who specifically is Paul classifying as an enemy? Well, he tells us, look at verse 19, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame and set their mind on earthly things. Now, if you like to eat, don't start feeling convicted, okay? Because Paul's not talking about people who like to eat. He's talking about those who are filling fleshy appetites is what he's talking about. And he's, you know, he's warned us already about the legalists up to this point, but now he's kind of shifting gears to the other end. You have the legalists, and then you have the licentious people. And now he's beginning to focus in on them. And, and these were the professing Christians. He's not talking about people outside of Christianity. He's talking about people within who are celebrating their supposed liberty in Christ, okay, as an excuse and, and, and a license to go fill their flesh. And particularly as in mind these Christ-professing Greek believers who were giving themselves over to what was called Epicurean tendencies and practices. And, of course, the other people who are following their example. Now, what were the Epicureanism, or what were the Epicureans? Well, the Epicureans represented a Greek school of philosophy which taught that the satisfaction of the physical appetites was the highest aim of man. What you could get for yourself to make yourself feel good is the highest achievement that man could have in his life. And they were making it spiritual. They were doing it under the cross of Christ. They, they, were, they were allowing their Christian liberty to, to, to degenerate into license. Because I'm free in all things, I can do all things. I, because Christ has set me free from the law, that means I don't have to do anything else. I can just go live the way I want to live. They didn't understand God's grace, and what they thought was that, that it had a light attitude toward continuing in sin. It didn't matter if you continued in sin. 
You know, here this morning, I've talked to you about our failures. I've talked to you about what to do when we fail, but I don't think that you would walk away thinking that I have a light view of sin or that I'm encouraging sin. You're saying, it doesn't matter. It's okay. Jesus will be on the other end to give you forgiveness if you do it. Yeah, he will be. But at what expense? At what expense? He went to the cross and he died for your sin, not so that you could continue in it, so that you could be free of it and free of the condemnation that comes from it, you see. But that's a different message than what the Epicureans were, were, were suggesting, these Epicurean Christians. What they were suggesting is liberty gives us freedom to not worry about sin. Liberty gives us the perspective that sin really doesn't matter anymore. So if I want to engage in it, I can. If it makes me feel good, then do it. And they were engrossed only in, in satisfying themselves, self-indulgence. You see, they're the polar opposites of the legalists that Paul was talking to. But you can understand why legalists arise when you get this group coming up too, right? Because it's the response against the other. Epicureanism, although that's a big term and maybe you never heard the word before, it's alive and well today, and it's growing. It's growing in the church. I've thought a lot over the last month or so as we've talked about this issue of grace. I've thought a lot as I've been writing about the issue of grace, how there will be people who will read some of the things that I write and completely misinterpret what grace is because somebody has been telling them their version of grace. And it is, and I understand, and sometimes this term gets around, you know, there is a cheap grace that's out there. I don't, you know, I, I know sometimes the legalists say that to anything where you apply grace, that you're cheapening grace, and I'm certainly not that. You know, great, grace was meant to give us freedom from condemnation. Grace was meant to set us free from the have-to-dos, the have-to-dos, the have-to-dos. But grace was always meant to change it from the have-to-do to the want-to-do. You understand, grace was meant to change it from the have to do to the want to do because I've suddenly been set free from something by a means that I didn't come up with, by a price that was very expensive to be purchased, and it was given to me as a gift. I've been told that I, have, I am now acceptable to God despite who I am. That, I have to tell you, honestly, for me, has never been an issue of suddenly becoming freedom to go do what I want, but it's turned it into what I want to do now in return, you see. I don't do it well, and I'm learning how to do it through the power of Christ, but it still becomes a one to do. But there's a message out there today that says that grace means we can never challenge people with sin in their lives. We can never discuss things that, that would take away from them anything related to what they perceive as their freedom. And I'm telling you that that is an Epicurean, it is a false message, and it is why in many of these places where that is taught, you have men and women who are not married living together, and they think nothing of it. I have family members like that, not my immediate kids, but within our circle of family who are like that. Attending churches that, that preach, you know, faith in Christ alone and salvation can't take away from that, but there's no mention at all of what the Bible says about these particular issues of what it means to, to live the spiritual life, what it truly is, what grace should be leading us to in the process. But instead, what they do is they stay away from this, and so they accept Christ, but they continue on in their lives as they've always continued on, except now they do it with complete freedom. That's a distortion. That's a distortion, and that is Epicureanism at its best. 
liberty degenerating into license, thinking lightly that sin doesn't matter to God anymore. Sin matters to God. Think back, even when he was making these statements back in the passage I read to you from Exodus this morning, where he declares himself, he goes through all these statements about himself, but then what does he say? But not letting go the sins of those that have committed those without forgiveness. They just have done it lightly. You know, and visiting those sins upon them. You know, God, God is, our problem is that we have a hard time because we can't, we can't see the multiplicity of what God is of being both justice and grace simultaneously. He's, in our minds, we have to compartmentalize them to one or the other. But I'm looking at you and saying, we cannot do that. He is both. God can be the God who embraces the sinner and at the same time, the God who judges the sinner. He is both, and that's beyond our comprehension. But he is both, and we have to accept him as both, and we have to see him within the context of both as we look at these things in his word. So when I see him as grace, I must understand that this is still a God of justice, a God of justice who has shown grace to men through the work of Christ on the cross, knowing our frail condition, knowing that we can't do it, has made provision for us, has given us the power to overcome, but he's given us the power to overcome. And he's wanting us to walk that out by receiving that power to overcome, by looking to these things and not ignoring these things in the Scriptures, you see. Epicureanism says we don't have to. We can continue on in our sin because we're free to. It's, it's sin doesn't matter to God anymore, and, and now we can have everything we've always wanted to do. And we can do it without guilt. We can do it without guilt. What's the Bible say? That's the real question, right? Galatians 5.3 says this, or 5.13, Galatians 5 and verse 13. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty... Only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. You know, oftentimes the fleshy things that people are doing use other people. They use other people. I think of those, and I'm just picking on that this morning because it's on my mind, but I think of those people who are living in, in an illicit relationship within the church. I'm saying, you know what, they're using each other. A lot of times the guy's using the girl. She's desiring love, and, and he's wanting other things. Now, it's not to say sometimes it's the reverse. It certainly can be, but I'm saying they're using each other. That's not God's heart. It's not God's heart. It can be in other things, too. But here, Paul says, don't use your, yeah, you have great liberty. You've been given, you've been given free from condemnation that comes from sin, but don't use that as a license, as an opportunity to serve your flesh, but serve God and serve each other. It's the command of Jesus, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love others as you love yourself. Galatians 5.24, And those who are in Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If I've died with Christ, then I've been resurrected to new life with him. And what's going to happen is my life should more and more become like his, not because I'm making it that way, but because I've yielded myself to him, to his way, so that he can make me into the very image he's placed now in me. Romans 6, verses 1 and 2, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Romans 6, verses 15 and 16. Romans 6, 15 and 16, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? 
Romans 16, 18, for those who are, who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 7. By the way, I think I'm going to tackle. I'm still pushing off the book of Timothy. I just want to tell you that. I just, I, the Lord's putting Ephesians on my heart. When we finish this one, I think we're going to go to the book of Ephesians. It just seems to continue the theme of where we are. But Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 7, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, Passes made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might not show, or that he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now think about that for a minute. If we have been raised up to be seated in heavenly places with Christ, Boy, oh boy, you just look around and say, how can those fleshy things that we can get ourselves entangled in and do and think we're okay to do it, is that, does that compute with being seated in high places with Christ? Is that what he would do? Is that where he would go? Is that what he would engage in? Is that what the kingdom is about, the license to do what we choose to want to do for our flesh, to satisfy ourselves? I think not. 1 John 2.16 1 John 2.16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. He also tells us elsewhere that this world is passing away. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 through 20. 1 Corinthians 6.12, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any foods for the stomach and stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Boy, if we just understood that I am not my own, I'm freed. Yet, if I've truly accepted that freedom that Christ has given me, what I've done is exactly what Paul has said earlier on. I've turned around and made myself a slave to Christ. I've made myself his bondservant, which means I now belong to him. I belong to him, but not only do I belong to him, but I am joined with him through his spirit living in me. I'm his temple. It's not a building. It's not this place. It's me and you. We are it. Where, what are we engaging in? Where are we going? What are we doing? Where are we joining that spirit with in this world? That should be the question we should be asking, and that alone should be the eye-opener to us of where, we're, where we are in our walk with him. Do you see? For you were bought at a price, verse 20, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Finally, James 4, 4 and 5 says this, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? I, I, 
What's the scripture tell us? I think it's very clear, right? Scripture is very clear. Liberty, yes, absolutely. License, no. It's not what we've been called to. And those that would seek to set themselves up as their examples must be evaluated by these things. We must be looking at their lives and saying, are they an example we should follow? Are they a pattern for Christ or are they a pattern for other things? And if they're a pattern for other things that are not leading us to Jesus and what he's declared, then we need to move away from them. And trust me, there are too many people today in this world who are trying to make themselves your example, spiritual examples, that surely are not leading you to Jesus or the things he says in his word. Grace has freed us from legalism, but grace did not free us to sin. And Paul says that those who would lead us in the other direction are really enemies of the cross because they're against everything that the cross is about and why it was there. Let's wrap this up. He says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. So in light of this, these two polar opposites, Paul, Paul is reminding us of something that is so important. What he says, if you want to be guided in the way that you should be living, then realize where your citizenship lies. Now that would have meant a lot to the Philippians because remember, the Philippian community was by and large a Roman community. It was Roman ex-soldiers as they got out and retired. They were given land in the city. They were there. They, these people in Philippi were given provisional status as citizens if they lived there, which to them was a big deal. And so what it meant is that when it came to how should we conduct ourselves in our lives, where did they look? They looked to Rome because we're Romans. And so we want to live like Romans, even though we're far from Rome. We're going to live like Romans in this community. And Paul's using an illustration that they would understand to say to them, if you would do that in your life, looking to Rome for your guidance, then look to heaven where your real citizenship lies as to how you should live. How do I want to live? What's my example? Everybody else in this world? Or is it the standard that God has set in heaven? And he's given us a picture of that in his word. And so he's laid that out and said, follow this. The standard has been clear. We have our home in heaven, and, and here on earth we're a colony of heaven citizens, Barclay says. Paul is saying, just as the Roman colonists never forgot that they belonged to Rome, you must never forget that you are citizens of heaven, and your conduct should match your citizenship. Therefore, verse, chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. And I say to you this morning, Stand fast in the Lord. Stand fast in your citizenship that you have in heaven because you know what? He also said that we know that the Lord will soon return. He says that there in that verse just came just before. And that's the imminency that we have of his potential return at any time. How do we want to be living as his citizens? Again, not a fleshly kind of living, not a living by our own effort, but giving ourselves over. I promise you this, if you give yourself over to Jesus each and every day, you give yourself over to him, lay your life open for him, and you simply say, yes, Lord, I'm going to follow you today. I'm going to obey you today. He'll keep you on course, and that course will lead you to the living of a citizen of heaven. Amen. 
Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.